Here I was at the funeral mass of my abuser, of a man who had used his power and authority to take advantage of me in the worst possible way when I was a child, when I had no way of defending myself. I never thought what he was doing was dirty. I always believed that he was in a revered position in my life. And I reacted in the very same way every time I was stunned, I was confused, I was scared, I was speechless, I was paralyzed. People say, why didn't you say anything? I really didn't want people to know what I had done because I thought it was something that I had caused. From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. For the next few episodes, we're stepping back from the investigations and the numbers and the theories to focus on what's most essential, listening to survivors. Each victim's story is different, and that's why we want to give you the chance to hear several. We'll release two of them per week for the next two weeks. Then we'll return to our regular format. Because these are real stories of abuse, they are especially difficult to hear. But we have to listen to survivors. They remind us who we are fighting for and why their call for justice is so urgent. It's why Pope Francis instructed every bishop attending the Vatican summit to listen to survivors in their home country first before coming to Rome. And when bishops did arrive, Cardinal Tagli from the Philippines had a reminder for them. Those who are sent to proclaim the core of our Christian faith, the dying and rising of Christ, can only do so with authenticity if they are constantly in touch with the wounds of humanity. We're all called to remain in touch with the world's woundedness. But to listen well is no easy task, which is why I sought out the Reverend Serene Jones. Serene is the president of Union Theological Seminary, a Disciples of Christ minister, and an abuse survivor. Why do you think it's important to listen to survivors? What can we learn from their accounts? So I could give a psychological answer to that, but I'd prefer to think about it theologically. And if you look at the whole of the, for me, I'm a Christian, the Christian tradition in the scriptures, it's a whole process of people bearing testimony, telling the stories of their lives, and being witnessed, being heard. And the literature on trauma now confirms that giving testimony and bearing witness is the absolute most essential part of the process of healing. That until the stories and the reality of what's happened can come out into voice and can be heard by another person, received by them, you can't start the healing process. Mm. Religious people need to stop being afraid of horrible stories. 
We need to get out of our sweet little worlds, our nice little worlds, and not be afraid of the horror of what's happening around us and hear it. And it's only if you have the courage to do that that then you can begin to go through the process of a God who is not afraid of your pain and in fact holds you in that pain and doesn't look away from you and is furious about your harm. Mm -hmm. I was teaching seminary students who were going to be pastors. The pastors look out at the congregation and act as if sitting in front of them are these rational, well-put-together, coherent people who are calm. And that's not, in fact, how most of us function. And the enormities of the traumas carried in our congregations has to be taken into account. And if the church can't speak to that, and if the church can't listen to that, then what is the church doing? Are there particular books in scripture or passages that you often turn to as an example of, well, lamentation or trauma? Well, I actually find the Psalms very helpful. In the literature on trauma, they talk about sort of three stages And trauma never follows particular stages very well, but these are the three general stages, is that if you're going to listen, someone's going to listen, someone's going to tell a story, you go through three parts. First, there has to be trust established between the two people, that no one's going to speak to you if they don't think you're going to listen to them and believe them and have their best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. So the first third of the Psalms are Psalms in which our trust in God and God's support and defense of us is the subject matter. Then what happens after trust is that the awful story comes pouring out in just horrible images and anger and feelings and, you know, rage and the desire to rip people to pieces. And that's what the middle thirds of the Psalms are. People forget how awful those Psalms are. But that's the rage coming out. That's the testimony. And then the last third of the Psalms is the third stage, and that's when, having spoken that horror, you begin to be able to integrate the horror back into the reality of ordinary life. It doesn't go away, but you can bear it. So there's psalms about breaking bread and making bread, Mm. playing with children, being able to stand in the sunlight. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the process of listening as part of the process of healing consists of. When you're talking to various communities, how do you recommend that one approach listening to the accounts of survivors? Listen empathetically and let the person who's speaking know that you trust them and that you have their best interest at heart. Secondly, don't interrogate them about, well, what time did this really happen? Or, you know, were there four cars in front of the house or three cars? Or, you know, how old was this person? but rather to realize that what you're getting is the outpouring of an experience that in the very moment that it happened was completely shattering. You're receiving the shards of memory. And any kind of judgment about questions that suggest what did you do to deserve this or how did you lead someone on or if you could do it over again, how would you have prevented this from happening? Anything that uh, suggests that somehow the person who was abused, did something to deserve this because nobody deserves this. Nobody under any conditions deserves this. Thirdly, admit to yourself what kind of effect it's having on you, what it might be triggering in you, 
and you can share that, but don't share it so much that your own pain overwhelms their pain because then they'll shut down and you want them to keep speaking. So recognize your own pain and then go find someone else to talk to so they can bear witness as you give testimony. So what would you recommend someone do if they're listening to a story and it is triggering something for them and they're having a really hard emotional response and yet they don't want to take away from the survivor who's sharing their narrative? What would you recommend that someone do in that moment? Well, you have to first admit it to yourself. If you don't admit it to yourself, then you're going to not be able to contain it. And you need to very quickly find a place where you can give testimony. You need to find someone to listen to you. And you need to work through in your own heart what happened. And you have to take that seriously. If you don't take that step to take care of yourself, Mm -hmm. then in the end, you're not going to be able to be a good person to be present to the healings of others. And you have to know when you just say, I can't do this anymore right now. Okay. You know, I've had to say to people, I love you so much, and I want to hear your story, and I just can't breathe right now, and I need to take a break. What role can spirituality and faith play in addressing trauma? So this is one of the big holes in the psychological literature on trauma, because when a person experiences trauma, I always think about it as a process by which their imaginations and their spirit gets broken, it gets fractured. And the process of healing, of putting yourself back together somehow, has to be a spiritual question, has to be a spiritual journey, has to be one in which you dig deep into what it means to be a human being and to be alive. When trauma happens, the fundamental connection that you're able to have to other people is shattered because another person attempts to destroy you. And so to be able to have trust in other human beings means that you have to do the deeply spiritual work of reimagining what human connection is in a way that's not awful or violent or violent. And that's spiritual. And then so much of the trauma that's inflicted is done in the name of God. And when it's done in the name of God, then the healing process has to directly deal with who we think God is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the worst thing you can do to someone of faith is take away their God by abusing them in the name of God. Mm -hmm. Turn God into an abuser. I think a lot of people are reluctant to enter into these really ugly painful stories because they fear that there might not be hope or that they might be enveloped in that despair. What word of hope do we have for survivors or for those accompanying them who are willing Mm -hmm. to get into that story? Yeah, they may feel like there's no hope. And it's also the case many are afraid of real punishment, like the real consequences of doing it. And they don't want to take that on. And we have to honor that. If they're too afraid to take on the consequences, then They have to be in control. I think that what's happening now in Me Too and in the Baptists and in what's happening in the Catholic Church, that is a sign of hope. And I find that with most survivors, and I include myself in this, that there's a deep desire to do as much as you can to make sure that it doesn't happen to the next generation. 
like a feeling that I need to step forward because I don't want my daughter to go through this. I can't bear that thought. And that's where my hope lies, that I can make a better world for her. One thing we heard Serene say was that no survivor's path to healing is exactly the same. And that was definitely true of the survivors we spoke with. Some found healing in breaking the silence and telling their stories. One committed herself to justice, fighting to prevent abuse like hers from happening in the future. One made his way back to his home parish and his spirituality after years away. But our first story begins in an airport. I could see that the TSA people were looking a little worried because here were these two grown men walking very quickly and one of them, me, raising my voice more and more. Father John, Father John, it's me, David, Father John. So I started walking towards him and he's again six foot four, so he has a long stride. So I was walking very, very quickly. And I was just saying, Father John, please, you know, stop. Father John, I just want to talk. And I was sweating and a little out of breath. And these TSA people were looking at me and one of them had his hand on what looked to be a radio on his belt. And then I just raised my hand and I said, look, I said, that's the priest who I knew as a kid from 40 years ago. He molested me, he molested my siblings, and I haven't seen him in 30 years, and I just wanted to talk. I'm David Clossy. I'm the former longtime national director of SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Currently, I'm the volunteer St. Louis director of SNAP. David Clossy grew up as one of six siblings in a working-class family in Missouri. The church was a central part of his life. He attended Catholic school, and one of his younger brothers, Kevin, went on to become a priest. I was raised in a very, very devout Catholic family. Uh, In fact, my parents were named Joseph and Mary. I I prayed a lot. I respected and revered priests. And when uh, I was working on, I think, in about the sixth or seventh grade uh, on the little school newspaper, and I was assigned to interview our new associate pastor, you know, I was just so thrilled and proud and grateful, and that's actually how I first met uh, Father John Whiteley. He needed help stuffing letters in envelopes for mailing and asked me to do it and went up to the rectory and helped. He gave me a ride home, told me he was grateful and that he would take me out to dinner to show his appreciation. And that was a huge deal for me. We were a working class family, six kids. He befriended both me and my my whole family, um, especially my parents, and eventually started taking me on out-of-town trips. So the very first time I saw the mountains, the ocean, first time I went canoeing, skiing, were all with this guy. And he would always abuse me, whether we were in a tent or sleeping in the back of his camper van or in a hotel or in somebody's lakeside cabin that had been loaned to him. And it was the same pattern, I was asleep And suddenly I would wake up and I would find his six foot four body on top of mine rubbing up against me. And and I reacted in the very same way every time I was stunned, I was confused, I was scared, I was speechless, I was paralyzed. If somebody had walked in on us and said, what's going on? I don't think I would have had 
the words to describe it. You know, this was the late 60s, early 70s, and this was a conservative part of the state, and my parents were people of their generation. So in essence, nobody talked about sex. And anyway, eventually he would finish, he would roll off of me, I would lay there again, just paralyzed. Sometimes for what felt like hours, I remember several times looking and seeing that the sun was actually rising. But I would go back to sleep and wake up and have absolutely no recollection of it whatsoever. None. That's one of the things that makes child sexual abuse so insidious. It's so often done gradually and gently and under the guise of love or sex education. And it's not a sudden, violent, out of the blue, brutal attack. And so kids don't even realize, you know, that we've been sexually violated. You know, we hear this all the time. Well, why do victims, you know, wait so long to come forward? It's not like we wait. It's just that we don't have the understanding and awareness that we've been hurt, that the hurt is severe, that its effects are ongoing, and then that we have both a moral duty and a legal possibility of doing something, right? So you have to jump through all of those hoops before you can take legal action. When I, first of all, after I remembered, went to therapy a lot, wrote the bishop and got a couple of very terse, cold, unhelpful replies and decided to sue. And I decided at that point I needed to tell my family. And to be honest, this is kind of embarrassing in retrospect, but the thought never really crossed my mind that he might have molested my siblings. My intention, calling my siblings, was to give them a heads up. And in a couple of those calls that I learned, you know, it happened to them as well. He didn't molest my sister nor my youngest brother, but the other four of us he did, including my brother Kevin, who went on to become a priest. In the early 90s, David filed a lawsuit against Whiteley and the Jefferson City Diocese. He filed the suit anonymously in an effort to protect his younger brother, Kevin, who was a priest in that same diocese. I'd been in a ton of therapy and really thought the worst was behind me. You know, I didn't by any stretch of the imagination assume or believe that I was finished healing. But, you know, I mean, let's face it, I dealt with having no memory of the abuse to accepting the abuse, to seeking help from the diocese, to being rebuffed by the diocese, to exploring litigation and then pursuing litigation. David's decision to sue the church strained his relationship with his parents. And then the publicity that comes from litigation and the non-support from my family of origin and all that stuff, plus the internal feelings of confusion and shame and self-blame and all the rest. So I dealt with a lot of that. And then along comes this phone call from somebody who said, you know, I used to work for the church. She said, listen, I'm giving you a heads up just because I don't want you to be shocked if a reporter calls you about this. But your brother Kevin has been suspended from his parish. It could be because of sex abuse allegations. Sometime after that, I got a phone call from a fellow on the East Coast, survivor, we talked for about an hour. He said at the end of the conversation, you haven't asked me who the perpetrator is. And I said to him, well, we in SNAP don't ever do that. We're a support group. And we figure that whatever you share with us is a gift. 
So if you want to tell me the perpetrator's name, I'm certainly happy to hear it. If you don't, that's certainly fine too. And he said, well, I don't think you're going to be happy to hear this one. And it was, in fact, my brother, Kevin. There was no criminal or civil action against my brother, you know, up until 2002. And, you know, his name was made public then. And in fact, it was made public again just last week. Uh, last week, the Diocese of Jefferson City posted for the first time on its website a list of credibly accused child molesting clerics. David's relationship with his family only became more strained when he heard the allegations against his brother, Kevin. And his own case was thrown out due to the expiration on the statute of limitations. But that same year that David filed his lawsuit, he discovered something that would become a big part of his life, and that was SNAP. My lawyer, when I was about to sue, he said, uh, you're going to need support. Litigation is a scary, draining process. I said, oh, I've got a wonderful fiance. I've got great friends. I'm in therapy. And he said, you need more. <laughs> and he told me about Barbara Blaine of SNAP, and I contacted her, and I think I was like the 12th or 13th SNAP member in the country. Our goal is to essentially protect the vulnerable, heal the wounded, and expose the wrongdoers. It is just crucial that anybody who sees or suspects or suffers abuse says something. The only thing we know for certain that doesn't work and that endangers kids is silence. Silence protects no one. Catholics can and should join victims in pushing the secular authorities to act. Police and prosecutors and civil lawyers every day are having to tell victims, sorry, can't help you. Statute of limitations has expired. Or sorry, can't help you. There's not enough evidence. I can still remember vividly the people virtually every single one who was at my first support group meeting. And I look at them and I think they are wonderful, caring, brave people who didn't deserve this in any way, shape or form and are in the process of overcoming it and turning it into something good in their lives. And then you know, the realization begins to hit that like, I'm one of these people. I didn't deserve this. I don't need to be defined by this. I don't need to run from this. David never did get a chance to talk to Father John Whiteley that day in the airport. He said he tried and tried to call out to him. But Father John kept walking. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. You can find additional music credits in the show notes. This episode was written and produced by Mary Beth Thoreau and Sarah Essakoff.
If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.